Well, it's good to be here again in the book of Titus, the book of Titus, and I would encourage you to go to the book of Titus with me this morning, as it's our privilege each and every week to open the scriptures. Dan has gone this Sunday, and I think in July he's going to be missing some Sunday, so it will give me time in a sense to catch up in the book of Titus. And I have to be honest, as we go through the book of Titus, it's my desire to move quickly. Um, and yet at the same time, we're, we're dealing with issues in the sense of good things, not bad issues, uh, within our church as we replant that are important for us to lay a foundation of which Titus, as a church planter, uh, deals with them in great detail. And so it would behoove us to move too quickly, and yet... I feel some obligation to do that. But we want to begin in Titus chapter 1. And if I may, just read the text for you, beginning in verse 5. Titus 1, verse 5. For this reason, this is Paul speaking to Titus, the church planner. For this reason, I left you, Titus, in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. The transformed lives begin with the gospel. There's no question that when we look at the church today, it is in much need of lives who are shown to be those transformed by the gospel. In the gospel, transformed lives begins with the gospel preached. This is what Paul said to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 13, has, excuse me, verse, uh, verse 18. For the word of the cross, that is the preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ, is the gospel. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to those of us who have been saved it is the power of God the gospel in and of itself has a power to transform lives we've talked about that many times it has the power to bring dead men and women spiritually dead people to new life it has the power to take those who are unrighteous and, and deserving of divine judgment to a position now of righteousness in Christ Jesus. A place of no judgment, no condemnation. If you remember in Romans chapter 1, that great treatise really by the Apostle Paul wrote, and he said this in Romans 1, 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, 
For in the gospel, Paul says, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. He will not be condemned when he stands before the judge. The power to bring about a transformed life is inherent in the gospel itself. The gospel that you and I have come to know, if you are sitting here as a Christian today, is also not just there for the moment of salvation, but it is for the life of salvation and also put in words of the putting off and putting on. It's the gospel preached that we learn to put off the old self and to put on the new self. To do away with the things of our sinful old nature and put on that which is consistent with the new nature in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul sells it so eloquently. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 22, Paul says this, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speaking truth to one another, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather must, what? Labor, performing with his own hand what is good. And that's what Paul is communicating here. In the gospel, there is a power to save and to transform the life. And it teaches us to lay aside all that is inconsistent with Christ's likeness and put on the likeness of our Savior. So true is this that in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, if you will, Paul says this, For if you are living according to the flesh... That's the old self. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. That's the promise. You, you can't become a believer and not have a transformed life. It's not that you'll be perfect, perfected in this life. It's not that you'll be sinless. But your life changes. Because the gospel has the power to do so. Whenever we speak of this topic, it brings up some discomfort perhaps because we all know that we fail in so many ways. Sometimes we are so distraught over the struggle with sin that we wonder if really it's even possible. How would I ever be able to become the godly man or the godly woman that God wants me and calls me to be in the Scriptures? It's almost as though we're fighting a battle in which we don't have the armaments to win. And yet to 2 Peter, we run. Because we know in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he says this concerning our salvation. Seeing that his divine power, that's that gospel power. Seeing that his divine power has granted, notice that's past tense. It's already accomplished. It's already been granted. 
the power and the strength at the mo has been come at the moment of salvation to everyone pertaining to life and godliness. At the moment of your conversion, God, at that moment, through the gospel, empowers us to live the life that we're to live in godliness and holiness for his glory. As I look at Titus, and I look at church planting and church revitalization, and I look at Christ Church of Bardstown, I have to ask the question of myself, of each one of us as a church as a whole, what does this world need? What does the church here need perhaps most? It needs to see transformed lives. It needs to see men and women conquering through the power of the Spirit, the indwelling Spirit, through that divine power that's been granted to us, according to 2 Peter 1.3, lived out so that they can see the, that the truthful claims of Christianity are indeed true. What the world, what the church, what individuals within this church, even those who seem to be strong today, who will be weak tomorrow when trials come. They need to see that the gospel indeed changes everything. There needs to be hope for those who are hopeless. There needs to be some kind of look towards those who are in crisis. Need to look and say there is power in the gospel for me as well. And they need to see a model, an example of just that. They need to see that the gospel has the power to raise us above the mundane of this world, among the gutter and the trash of this world, the sin that so easily encompasses us. And I think that's what Titus is speaking to when it comes to leadership in the church, to elders. He's looking for men. He said, Titus, go out and find those men who live such exemplary lives. Exemplary lives because they show to the rest of the people in the church. They show to the outside world that indeed the gospel transforms lives. You see, your personal testimony is important. Our personal testimonies are important. Not just the day that we were converted but our personal testimony of God's continuing saving work all the way through to glory, to the moment that we see him and it's complete. And so it is with Titus then. He calls out and looks for these men. Peter or Paul to Titus says, go out and look for men who are transformed by the gospel. I ask you this. Does the life of Christ really change how you live? And when, you, when you were going through the gospel of Mark with Dan, I mean, are you not just completely fascinated by the God-man named Jesus Christ who came and dwelt among men? Not just by his miracles, but by his perfection, but by the way in which he honored God in everything that he did, said, and thought. Lived completely under the power of of God's spirit. 
Astounding. That same power is this power that you and I are to live by. Are you not completely amazed, and, and I know many of you are, by the death that he died? An innocent, pure, spotless, unblemished lamb. And yet he was crucified, and there as he was crucified, he bore sin. Your sin and my sin. That ought to transform the way you live. Listen, he was... He was taking on sin. He was spit on. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. How many of us have been mocked and ridiculed? Do we respond the same way? That's a transformed life. He didn't become angry. He didn't become frustrated. He didn't sit there and say, woe is me. He entrusted himself to his father. And then when he died, he was buried and he rose again for his own new life. But what? For your new life and mine. A transformed life. You see, transform life in which now we are empowered to live for him, like him. I think when we come to Titus and we come to the elder qualifications, that's really where we're at. We know where we're at. That, that's what we're looking for. We're not looking, as we'll say in just a few minutes in more depth, we're not looking for men who are perfect, for no man is perfect. But we're looking for men, and we're looking for men to follow so that we can become like them. We're looking for men who are above reproach, as we'll see, so that we can also become above reproach, whether you're a man or a woman, a young man, a young woman, a child to look up to. That's what we're after. And I want to predicate with that because it's the gospel that transforms. It's not pull myself up by the bootstraps and become this kind of man. It's when we are face-to-face, moment-by-moment, every day with the very gospel, it changes our life, changes how we live. Well, let us begin what I'd hope to do in one week. I don't know. We'll see. I have it all pretty much here, but we probably will only get partway through this. In verse 5, if you remember, Titus is left in Crete to appoint elders in every city. We are in Crete. It's a little... It's a, I say a little island. It's a, it's a big island in the Mediterranean Sea. The gospel has begun to make inroads. Paul and Titus have been going through. There's these little pockets throughout the island that now need to be formed and, and brought into conformity with what the Bible instruction is for elders, godly men, to lead them for the future. To build the church, God will use these godly men to build his church. And Paul says, Titus, you need to have the right kind of men. And so what kind of men are these? And this is important for us because in the next month or so, we will be appointing and, and affirming men to this position. What kind of men should we look for? What kind of men should be appointed to this? It begins in verse 6, and I want to give them to you. Uh, is, I'll just kind of list them. We're going to make our own little list. And he says first in verse 6, namely, if any man is above reproach, that's item number one. If any man is above reproach. If you notice also, he will say it again in verse 7, for the overseer must be above reproach. Twice he listed. I think it's because it's like an umbrella. He's going to set up the umbrella and say, under this umbrella there are all kinds of facets, but I want you to see this man ultimately, who's going to be put in this position of authority, going to be put in a position to teach, going to be put in a position to protect, to shepherd the flock, must be above reproach. 
as we're going to see, this above approach is in his private life. It's also in his public life. He can't go out and live one way to the, to the world, and yet in his private life, his home life, it's something different. He must be above reproach. It's one whose life is lived above the, the level of being able to be reproached by others. This is the, the kind of the synchronon of characteristics of, of this man. The, the primary qualification of a man is the above reproach. All of the other traits are going to be a description of a man who is above reproach. You know, above reproach is kind of an old-fashioned word in a sense. I remember as a 14, 15-year-old man, we went through a book on the elder qualifications. It was geared for just men. And they kept using the word above reproach, and nobody really defined what that is. And so I, I tried to use what other men have used and, and taught me, and that's the word blameless. You want to be above reproach, it means that you are blameless. Now, blameless doesn't mean that you're faultless, that you've reached some level of perfection. No leader has become without sin. Every man, every woman is, to some level, sins still and continues to sin this side of heaven. It's, it's dangerous to even, and there are those who would say out there today within quote-unquote Christendom, it would say that you can reach a level of perfection. That's a dangerous place for leaders and congregations to pretend that anyone could become perfect. Nor could we ever demand perfection out of anyone. To be above reproach means to be unaccusable. Unaccusable. It speaks of a person whose character or conduct is free from damaging moral or spiritual accusations. No one can come up and say, this person did this or that, and it's sin, and it's evil, it's wicked, whatever it may be, and it actually stick, or people would actually believe it. In, in a hotly charged in political environment that we live in, another great word I like to think of it as, it's, it's, he's in, in impeachable. He can't be impeached. He's going to be put into a position of authority, and because he's above reproach, nothing can stick to him. Because everyone knows it would be a false charge. Because he lives his life in an irreproachable manner. This is the kind of man that no one suspects of any wrongdoing. Any type of immorality or any misconduct. He has the demeanor and the behavior over time, that has gained the respect and the commendation of others, even those who he disagrees with. Even the world, who has a radically different perspective on life, looks at this man and says, he's a good man. He lives the life Paul called in Ephesians. I, I love Ephesians. And you go back to it so often, I do. He says, it's a life worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Paul says all this great things about how the gospel makes this impact in our life and our position in Christ. And then in chapter 4 of Ephesians, he says, now go live a life worthy of the calling with which you've been called. This man does it. This man lives a worthy life. And Paul leads with this overarching quality for a number of reasons. 
Why does this man need to have this huge characteristic? It's paramount because he's going to be invested with authority over other people. John Calvin said this. He said, he must be blameless. Speaking of this elder concerning him being above reproach. He must be blameless or one marred by no disgrace that would diminish his authority. He should be a man of unblemished reputation, end quote. As an elder, uncorroborated accusations will come. They will. People will accuse you of all kinds of things. The immature, the sheep, will turn around to try to bite you, and they will bite you with an accusation. But he who is above reproach will receive the benefit of doubt because his reputation is impeachable. Unimpeachable, excuse me. Being above reproach is the key to effective leadership for the shepherd. For the shepherd is to be an example to the sheep. You see, any man who lacks integrity is not worthy to be followed. A man with a good reputation stands out among the sheep. The sheep look to that one who stands out as one who has integrity of a, of a life transformed by the gospel. That's what we're talking about. Sheep are hopeless animals, of which all of us, including elders of sheep. And yet the hope of the sheep is Christ, and they see Christ and his transforming power of the gospel of Christ through these men. Contrast that in Titus chapter 1, if you will, with the men of Crete. Look at verse 12. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Verse 16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. You see the contrast that Paul is making here? He's making a contrast. You need to be completely, radically different in your transformed life by the gospel than these liar Cretans, by these false people, by these disobedient, by those who say one thing but do another. Now let me ask, let's get practical. What's that look like? What's that look like for us here at Christ Church of Bardstown? Well, I could name... We could name a whole list. Paul's going to name an inspired list for us. But just on a very practical level, these are men who keep their commitments, aren't they? These are men who give up their time sacrificially. They keep their word, even when it hurts. These are men who other people look out, look to and say, hey, if I need advice in life, if I'm in a crisis, this is who I pick up the phone and call or text nowadays. These are the men who have earned the respect of others. They've never demanded it. This is a man who the church believes when he speaks. Outside the church, to the world, a man who is above reproach, shows up to work on time. He doesn't cheat. He doesn't steal from an employer or anyone. He holds a steady job. The people that he works with views him positively because of his excellent work. 
Because of the habits of his life. Because of the priorities of life. Because when he walks into work, he's considered one who always puts others before himself. The list could go on and on, couldn't it? Let me ask you this. And this isn't just for men. This is for women too. Because as we said uh, two weeks or three weeks ago. This is for all people to be aiming for. The question is this. Where do you stand or fall in being above reproach? If, if you ever take a sermon and you go home and you review it. Put in big bold letters at the top. Where am I not above reproach? And prayerfully ask that question. Well, to help us to do that, we'd better move on to the second one that Paul gives us, the second quality. And I say quality because these are not a checklist. These are qualities that a man ought to have. Number two, he says, the husband of one wife. Verse six, these elders are to be the husband of one wife. And, and I think this would be advantageous for us to, in a sense, see this with the number three, which precedes it, or the, which follows it, and that's having children who believe. That they can almost be taken together because uh, for men who are above reproach, the first place of blamelessness or to be above reproach is with their family, with their wife and their children. It's the proving grounds. We ought to see men in, who are leaders in the church who have relationships with their wives and children that are exemplary. Not perfect, but exemplary. Different from the world. Transformed by the gospel. I have to say, I'm, I'm reminded of this often by my own children. Okay? They, they like to make sure that I keep this one in check. I remember a time that Rachel and I were joking about something. Just having some fun. I don't even remember all of the details. Um, but I used one of those forbidden words. Okay? And by forbidden, I don't mean what you and I would probably consider a curse word. But it was a word that they are, were not allowed to say. And, and I could say this, and I say this with all due respect. But my wife has given my kids a list of 1,598 words they can't use. Right? To keep them pure. To teach them and to train them and to instruct them. Words, they, they bring negativity. Okay, so I'm thankful she's got them. The problem is I haven't memorized all 1,598 words. If you know what I mean. Well, one day we were joking and I said one of those words on the list. And no sooner had I said it when out of the back seat of the car, and I don't remember who said this. They won't want me to tell who it was anyway. I said, Dad, you're a pastor. Clean up your language. Okay? Now, some of you guys have always had that, you know, out of the mouth of babes, Right? I guarantee it was said in the most respectful manner. They meant no disrespect whatsoever. But my point is this. Those who lead must be men who's what? Who reflect an excellence of character in their home. In their home. Our wives and our kids know us the best. And they prove the veracity of our claims to the transforming power of the gospel. Thus, Paul tells Titus, an elder must be first the husband of one wife. Let's look at it quickly. The husband of one wife. This is in both Titus's list to Titus and Paul's letter also to first uh, in, to Timothy in First Timothy chapter three, and it's always listed first above after above reproach. 
He must be above reproach. And then immediately, Paul says in both lists, he must be the husband of one wife. We don't always put lists in order of priority, but in the New Testament, predominantly, you see this. What is number is often listed first is always number one of importance. A man's marriage and sexual life speak of the true nature of his spiritual qualification to lead the church of God. Now, a more literal translation would be he's a one woman man instead of the husband of one wife. He's a one wife kind of man. I'm going to say right now there's a lot of disagreement over what this is actually speaking of. But I, and, and I want to quickly work you through a couple of those interpretations and, and draw a few conclusions as we go. I don't want to belabor this point. I think we're probably all very similar in this. And, but one of those interpretations that I don't hold to is that elders must be married. This is, this, this is a qualification of Paul saying that because you have to be the husband of one wife, you have to be married. And so that disqualifies anyone who's not married. The problem I have that is that, that, is in, that doesn't line up with some other scriptures. Number one, 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul says that those who are single have advantages. The advantage is they don't have to worry and, and to take care of their wife and their children and families and all that, but they can serve the Lord unhindered. Even says to be single is more effective for ministry. Paul himself perhaps being single. It's an undivided service for singles. Paul didn't say a man must have a wife in our text. He just says he must be a one wife kind of man. And so I don't think it, this text says that single men cannot be. Secondly, there are some who would take this of you and say it's against polygamy. It just means that a man can't have uh, more than uh, two or more wives. Well, the problem comes with the related phrase in 1 Timothy 5, 9, the wife of one man. Right? Talking about the deaconesses. The wife of one man as a qualification for widows who are to receive assistance from the church. Okay, So the, the reverse is also used of those widows. Now, certainly Paul wasn't speaking of women who had more than one husband. Because in the day that Paul wrote, women didn't ever have more than one husband. They weren't allowed to. In Greek and in Roman culture. So vice versa. There's a third view. That elders can only marry once in their lifetime. This is a view that I'm pretty familiar with because several reasons, but primarily that uh, way back in my earlier life, I was a part of a church in Colorado um, during my 20s, primarily, even high school a little bit, but mainly in my 20s, in which there were several elders among the elder board that held to the view that you can only be married one time, and if your wife dies, you can't get remarried. They forbid remarriage. The man who is divorced or remarried or and remarries or a widower who has been remarried is automatically disqualified. Probably some of you have never heard that view before, but it is prominent in certain circles. But that doesn't align with the rest of Scripture. For Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 39 and following, Romans 7, he affirms that death it does indeed dissolve the marital union and opens the way for remarriage. 
It does indeed. Paul could have said, having been married only once. An elder can only be, have been married one time, but he didn't say that. He said he has to be a one-woman kind of man. And so I think we're only really left with one plausible or defendable interpretation. And here's what it is. Paul is here instructing Titus to prohibit any man from elder that is not above reproach in his marriage, particularly in the realm of sexuality and emotional support. Paul's command is to appoint men who are faithfully committed to a monogamous marriage with one woman. That is the pattern of their life. The focus is on the quality of the man's character, not whether he is married or single, a widow or remarried. Is the man a one-woman kind of man? Is he exclusively committed for life to one woman? So obviously that, that would prohibit polygamy, homosexuality, adultery, all kinds of fornications, and so on. The husband of one woman is sexually pure. He's morally upright in his relationship with his wife and other woman. If ever there was a day that this is an important quality, it is today. You know the sexual perversion and promiscuity that goes on today. The church needs men who demonstrate God's design for marriage. And that's one man with one woman for life. Those who would hold this office, Paul is saying, the office of elder must be blameless, above reproach, blameless when it comes to their marriage. So, think it practically. Men, have you, or I should say, do you, pray against temptations? Men, do you have safeguards in your life? Is there accountability? I love how Jesus says it. He says, listen, if this is an issue, you better cut off your right hand or poke out your eye. He doesn't mean literally, per se. But he says, you better do some radical surgery to ensure that you uphold the idea of integrity and being above reproach in your marital relationship. And it's not just outwardly. It's inwardly. The battle with pornography and explicit materials. You see, elders are to be examples to the flock that the gospel indeed has the power to overcome all that is opposed to God. All that is against God's standard. So these men must be, by the grace of God, victorious over these things. Sexual impurity is incongruent with the Christian life. Even more so it could be said, with men who are to lead the church. Man, are you faithful to the wives of your youth? Men, on your deathbed, will you be able to say, I've been faithful to your wife? Do you find satisfaction emotionally and physically in all of the beauty God has made for her to be for you? Let me, let me be, because this is such a, a big one, I think, for men. And, and it's, it's oftentimes quietly swept under the rug. Let me give you some questions. Men, have you ever broken the marriage covenant with 
through an adulterous relationship and maybe even buried it and not said anything and made it through, you think? I hope not. It's disqualifying. Perhaps you're saying, you know, I've never had physical relationships with another woman. Well, let me ask you this. Are you emotionally involved with someone who is not your wife? That would disqualify you from being an elder. Let me ask you this, wives. This is a good test for your husbands to take. Does your wife believe you to be qualified in this area? Man, back to you. Do you compromise by being do you compromise being above reproach by your interaction with females, co-workers, other women at the gym, neighborhood, etc.? Has your marriage been the center of your home, man? Those are hard questions for some. For an elder and an elder's wife, they ought to be able to say, he's above reproach. He's blameless. As I said earlier, related to that one, number three, let me give this one to you as we continue to move on. Having children who believe. Verse six is to have having children who believe. Now, again, there's disagreement over what this exactly is speaking of. I don't think it's all that difficult. The, the question is this. When Paul says he's having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, is Paul intending to say elder, uh, elders are required to have children? No, I don't think that. He doesn't say you must have children. He says in having children... The, the assumption there is, is that elders are going to be married and have children. That's, that was common life in first century and even to this day. Most are married. Most do not have the gift of singleness. And most then get married and barring some act of, uh, of, of God, which a, of a husband and wife couldn't have children, there would be children involved. So I don't think that's the issue. Second issue we need to talk about is we, we just read it, having children who believe. Now you read that and you say, well, does that mean my children have to be saved? Well, well then you have the question of, is what about children who are very young? If an elder has kids who are in high school and all of a sudden has one of those oops babies, does he now disqualify because he has a child who is now an infant and no longer not saved? What happens when elders have children who appear to be saved? They make a profession of faith. They're baptized. They live well. And then they're in their 20s and 30s. They go out and they completely leave the faith. Does that now disqualify someone from being an elder? Well, if you take the word believe here to be in that strictest sense that they must be saved, then indeed someone who has an adult child would have to be disqualified or a child too young. The Greek word here for believe is the word pistos, which can be translated actively as believing or passively as faithful or trustworthy or dutiful. Timothy uses this as a faithful man. In 2 Timothy 2, 2, he says, entrust to faithful men. All right? Men who are trustworthy, men who are dutiful, men who have, have taken up the task and said, we're going to faithfully see this task to the end. 
What I think in interpreting this, you have to see is the contrast that Paul is doing. It's not between believing and unbelieving children. He doesn't say you must have believing children versus unbelieving children. He says you must have faithful children versus unfaithful and disobedient and children, those who are of dissipation and rebellion. Dissipation or rebellion is emphasizes behavior, right? An elder has to have men, of children who are not completely ruled by rebellion, are not ruled by behavior that is that is is is, is disgusting and sinful and wicked. Unbelieving children can be taught to live moral standards. In any God-fearing home, that's what we're teaching our children. Because ultimately, we can't change the human heart. But we're setting them up so they can hear the gospel and believe. So the contrast, Paul's saying, is not believing and unbelieving. The contrast is, are they respectful? Are they honoring to their parents? Are they faithful to their parents' love and admonition? I think also what's helpful is Paul's statement to Timothy concerning elders. In 1 Timothy 3, 4, Paul says elders must keep his children under control with dignity. He doesn't use the word here. The, the parallel passage doesn't even use believing and unbelieving. He says he must have control of his kids with dignity. Listen, to, to put a, the burden on an elder that his kids must be believing is an impossible burden to carry. Our theology tells us that, right? Because even the best fathers in Christianity can never guarantee their children's salvation. Because ultimately salvation is a supernatural, sovereign act of God, not the work of good parenting. Doesn't let us off for being poor parents. Doesn't let us off the hook for saying, well, you know, I don't have to do anything. I'm going to let go and let God. The issue is, how does this man parent? You see, to be an elder means that you, that you get, in a sense, a, a, an examination to say, what are, how are your parents? Are your children obedient? That doesn't mean they're perfect. Okay. It doesn't mean your children never scream. They, they never disobey. They never, you know, are disrespectful. The question is, is, is the pattern, are they what? Are they known for their dissipation and rebellion? Their dissipation is, is wild, reckless living. They're just going to take off the, the, the limiter, the governor, and they're just going to go do whatever they want to go do. Even in young children, you see this. Are they rebellion, unruly, insubordinate? Or are they, what, under control, managed well? I mean, to make it real practical, does this man provide leadership to his family? Not, not as a dictator. He's not trying to just make moral kids. That's not the kind of elder we want. We're not, we're not a, we don't want a, a guy in the elders to say, you know what, we just got to get people in here. We're going to make them moral. That's what AA and some of these other things do. They're just going to make moral people. We're not in, interested in making moral people. We're interested in proclaiming Christ, Christ crucified, so that people's lives are completely changed. They have the power done under the gospel that lives are transformed to the glory of Christ. We seek men who 
know what it is to bring a young person along, not as a dictator, but with loving, respectful authority so that children want to submit. We want children to submit not out of fear, but out of what? Love and affection. And sometimes that love is disciplines. That love is firm. And so it is in the church. Are a man's children respectful? Is he attentive to his home? Does the man take parenting seriously? Does he put his energy and time into raising respectful, obedient children who are submissive to him and so that when they hear the gospel, they want to submit to the Lordship of Christ? Interesting follow-up in 1 Timothy 3. Paul told Timothy, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? See what I mean? It's the proving grounds. If a man can't take care of his children, how could he be expected to, to take care of God's children? Man, your home, as I said, is the proving ground. First with your wife, then with your children. Before I move any further, I think we ought to just quit there and come back and I can finish up the next ones next week. But let me just give you a little something, if I may. We've been talking about elders. And in one sense, some of you men know that you ought to be and where you ought to be and you know that you're perhaps not there. God's grace is sufficient, isn't it? And he's bringing you along if you're his child. And I want to encourage you men who you hear these words and you go, I'll never be there. I'll never get there. Ultimately, it comes to this. It comes to the gospel, doesn't it? What we've talked about. And understanding that the gospel alone has the power to transform. And oftentimes what gets in the way is ourselves. Whether it be our laziness, our selfish pursuits, we want to be do what we want to do when we want to do it. And raising children is fun when they were little babies and our wives took care of them for the most part. But now it takes time. It takes self-sacrifice. I want to encourage you to do just that. With your wives, it takes time. It takes humility. It takes willing to confess sin and repent of it. And yet, some of you men have found some, by the grace of God, some success. And for them, we give thanks. And also call you to a life of leading in the church. One of my favorite books that to read was The Reformed Pastor by Richard Baxter. He died decades, centuries ago. And he warns pastors. He really a warning to churches as they look to men who will lead the church. And he says this to those who would be elders. Take heed to yourself. Lest your example contradict your doctrine. 
lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues and be the greatest hinderers of the success of your own labors. He's speaking about being above approach, isn't he? He's speaking about those who would, would have all of the right doctrine, all of the right, say all of the right things. And yet, truth be known, it hasn't made a hill of beans difference in our lives. Because we still live according to the flesh. And instead of living the transformed life that comes through Christ and the gospel. Let us pray. Our gracious God in heaven, again, we, we're humbled. There's a certain level of fear and intrepidation to open up such a passage, preach such a passage, listen to such a passage, because not one of us will ever be qualified on our own. Not one of us would ever be able to evaluate ourselves by this standard and find ourselves worthy of a position of leadership, let alone, Father, any of us here in this room, men and women, could have any success were it not through the transforming power of the very gospel that we love. It is because Christ died for our sins and the judgment we deserve has been taken. It is because he died our death but he was raised so that we also are raised to a new life. And your spirit lives within us and gives us by your grace through the word the power of the gospel lives out in transformed lives. God, again, we confess each one of us here that we are but sinners. But we are also sinners who have experienced the tremendous grace, the wonderful, marvelous, unmatched grace of Christ. And because of that, Father, we pray that each one of us this week would go forth and live lives above reproach, blameless, unimpeachable, a life where no one could accuse us of any immorality, any evil deed, anything that stands against your perfection. God, this will only be true if you work in us and through us to the praise and the glory of our great Savior. And it's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.